One of the most frequent conversations I have, particularly with young people, particularly with young men, when I'm talking to them about the gospel and talking to them about the great hope of the gospel, talking to them about the great promises of the gospel, talking to them about the great fulfillment of the gospel and Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. One of the most frequent responses I get is, uh, that's something I'll, I'll deal with later. Right now, I want to have fun. God is something I will come to terms with later in life. I want to have fun while I'm young. I'll go to church when I'm old. That's a really common response, particularly from young men who, t- who tend to have a whole lot of dreams, a whole lot of hopes, and, and their view of fun is really centered on things other than the gospel. Let's put it that way. And Solomon opens up this chapter for us this morning, correcting that false view. In verse 1 he says, remember also your creator when? When you're old, when you're in the nursing home, when you're on your deathbed. No, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon says, listen, I have been a young man, and when I was a young man, I had access to every pleasure there is on the earth. I'm the richest man of my time. I have more resources than anyone else around. I have 700 wives, 300 concubines. I lack for nothing. I have lacked for nothing my whole life. Remember, he took the throne as a boy, he says, in 1 Kings. And he comes to the end of his life. He's writing this now as an old man at the end of his life. And he says to the young people, which by comparison is all of us here, he says to us, remember your creator in the days of your youth. It's then that you need to pursue God. It's when you're full of vigor, full of ideas, full of energy, when you're making life's big decisions, it's then that you need to pursue your creator. It's then that you need to know God. He has said right throughout this book, listen, I did what you've just said. I pursued life and fun and pleasure all through my youth. I did that, and I can see now for a fact it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. It's shallow. And he said over and again through this, at various points when he's been optimistic enough to notice it, that actually life lived with God is good. Life lived enjoying God's good gifts of food and drink and sex and money and these things that God provides for us when enjoyed in the right context with the the goal being the worship of God rather than the worship of those things in and of themselves. When you do it that way, life is actually really good. It's not meaningless. It's enjoyable. And so he's saying to us in this, pursue fun. Pursue good times. Pursue joy and happiness, but make sure it's the kind of joy and happiness that's lasting, that goes beyond the here and now. So while you're young, remember your creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth because the time is coming when you will say that evil day comes and you'll say, 
I have no pleasure in them. I have no pleasure in life anymore. There's going to be a time, Solomon says, and he says it as an old man, probably feeling this way, there's going to be a time when you wake up each morning and you're like, ah, I woke up again. Why can't I just die? So while you're young, while you can enjoy life, make sure you enjoy life the way God intended it. Jimmy mentioned earlier that 360 trampoline park. We went there in the week before. We actually ran the, the night there just to check it out. And I noticed that this is true. Like I, for one of the first times in my life, I'm 33 now. And I noticed for one of the first times in my life, I was there trying to have fun, but all the while thinking about the next morning and how I would wake up in pain. I've never done that before. It's always been thinking after the fact about how much it hurts to have broken bones or you know, whatever. But this was while I was doing it. And that's because Solomon is right. These days are coming, and it's not just when you're old, it's when you're as old as I am that you start to think, man, I don't get so much pleasure out of this anymore. Yeah. Amen. And he really, he, he lays it out for us in beautiful, poetic fashion in the next few verses. I want to read them to you and just explain what they mean, uh, because he's a poet at heart. He's written this book along with the Song of Solomon, which is uh, beautiful poetry about sexuality and God's gift of pleasure and sex, and he's written a bunch of proverbs that he mentions there at the end, uh, which are beautiful and poetic, and he just kind of dips into that, um, into that artist mode here. So let me read this for you, verse 2 to 8. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. There he's talking about the arms and the legs. The keepers of the house are your arms where they start to tremble. I don't know if he was talking about Parkinson's disease or Parkinson's disease in particular or just old age in general. Hands start to tremble. Have you ever been around grandparents or, or an, an older friend and seen the hands tremble? Happens when you get old. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, there he's talking about legs. They're the, the, the men that were once strong, the, the strongest muscles in your body. When you start to age, they start to bend under your weight. They can't exert themselves in the same way as they used to. When the strong, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. What's he talking about there? Teeth. Exactly. The grinders cease because they are few. Teeth start to fall out and they don't do much grinding anymore. You go from eating roast beef to baby food. Particularly in his day, before we had dentures and things like that, fluoride. The grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. He's talking about the eyes. The vision starts to dim as those windows start to fade, and the doors on the street are shut. Here he's talking about, it was particularly in his day when your teeth fell out and you didn't have dentures to 
hold up, you'd hold your mouth together, then you'd get this kind of pursed look and your, your mouth would be closed all the time. Just that flappy lips shut all the time. The, the doors to the street are shut. When the sound of the grinders is low, what's he talking about there? Hearing fades, exactly. The sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. Restlessness in sleep. It's coming for us, guys, if it's not here already. Find it hard to get sleep at night. Wake up first thing in the morning. Fitful sleep through the night. You'll wake up at the sound of a bird when you're in your last days. Fitful sleep. Restless sleep. And all the daughters of song are brought low. Again, talking about hearing the music that you used to enjoy to listen to. Right? When you're 80 years old and you've got one of those classic CD players and your grandkids don't know what it is, but they're sort of marvelling at this thing that spins a mirror disc to make music and you, you're playing that, that beautiful, classic Britney Spears that you used to love so much and timeless. And, and you've got to crank it up right up to the top now because the, the music of the daughters, the song, has been brought low. Verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. You see older people tending to stay shut in, especially during the evening. But almost in the end, it's, it's most of the day and the night. Everything is frightening. Everything seems to be moving so fast. The, the senses are dulled. It's easy to be frightened by the life that happens around us. They are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. It's talking about the hair. The almond tree, when it blossoms, it blossoms with white, white flowers. And so when the almond tree blossoms, when you've got a beautiful head of white hair, Doug. It's a beautiful thing to have a head of white hair. I've got to say, I'm not a fan of hair colour. I'm not judging you, but I'm never going to be colouring my hair. I dig that look. So um, if you didn't know, Doug used to be a redhead, so uh, you'd never know, huh? Yeah. That's not a joke. He, he was. Yeah. The Bible likes grey hair. It's a crown. It's a crown. Embrace it, ladies. All right. I'm not judging, I'm not judging, I'm just, I'm just guilting you, all right? So, Bible says, go grey. When the almond tree blossoms and when the grasshopper drags itself along, when you used to be virile and quick and easily leaping around the place as a young man or woman, now the grasshopper drags itself along. It's quite an image. And desire fails. He's talking about sexual desire there. Desire fails. You can have as much Viagra as you want, but one day you're just not going to want it anymore, all right? Even Solomon, a thousand women, even for him, desire failed. It's interesting that he put it last, all right? He's like, after everything is broken, then desire fails for Solomon. He was that kind of guy. But eventually, desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And at that time, the mourners will be in the streets. Your friends will be crying in the streets because you have departed to your eternal home. 
So that's one way of going. He says you can get really old and then die. This happens to some of us. We say people die of old age, don't we? But really it's because of the things that he's mentioned. Things just wear out. No one really dies of old age. Things just stop working. So that's one way of going. Then he talks to the rest of us here, some of us here probably, who'll never get to have white hair. Who'll never grow old enough to experience those things. There are some of us here probably who are going to die a whole lot earlier than that. And so he says, before the silver cord is snapped, he's talking about the spinal cord. If that is snapped in some kind of accident, or the golden bowl is broken, your head smashed open, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, he's talking about your heart, you had a heart attack, or somehow your heart fails, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, your, your blood that pumps around your body is somehow uh, that cistern is severed and your blood pours out of you, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. He says, whether you die as an old man or woman or whether you die in some kind of accident that takes your life, everyone is going to their eternal home. Everyone's body is returning to the dust from whence it came and everyone's spirit is going to its creator. And Solomon has in mind here judgment day. He's going to finish his book in the same way that the Bible itself finishes. Eternity, judgment, reckoning. And so he says, with that in view, with that reality in view, that death is coming, that death is nigh, that death really is much closer to us than we even imagine, even if you live to 100, to 120. I don't know, what are we going to live to? 150, right? Even if, you, even if you coddle yourself well enough and give yourself enough comforts and medicines and prosperity to extend your days, that day is coming a whole lot quicker than any of us want to admit. Amen? And so he says, with that in view, verse 13, the end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Another way of saying that is this is the wholeness of man. This is what man has been designed for. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Who's, Who's scared? Every secret thing. Like the word in itself is ironic, right? There there is no secret thing. God already knows every secret thing. And he's going to bring everything into judgment. And so Solomon's advice, given that that's true, that death is just around the corner and judgment follows it, that all of us are going to our creator, we're going back to the God who owns us, that's why we, none of us can indict God if, if we don't make it to 90, 100 years old. If God takes our children when they're young, none of us can indict God because he both created us and owns us. And we return to him 
at his appointed time. So with that in view, with all of those truths in place, Solomon says, fear God. Fear God. This whole book has been one big experiment. If you're here in the first week, we we introduced the the whole book by saying this is one big experiment that Solomon uh, wants to... Uh, he, he wants to conduct, and, and it's the kind of experiment that a lot of us would want to conduct if we had the means, and the experiment is, how much pleasure can I have, and is there enough pleasure to satisfy me in life? And so a lot of us might want to do that, but we just don't have the resources to get it done. Solomon has everything he wants, all of the money, all of the property, all of the women, all of the wisdom. He's got everything he needs to conduct this experiment well. And so he gets after it. He throws the biggest parties the world's ever seen. He has access to enough uh, animals and wine to provide for 20,000 people. And it says he, he would do this, he would have these parties every day of the week. So he just got into it in a big way. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, every sexual fantasy played out multiple times. Women from all over the world, whatever he wanted. And so he conducts this experiment, and over and over and over again, he comes to the conclusion that it's all meaningless. That he agrees with those great theologians, the Rolling Stones, that there is just no way on earth that he can get satisfaction. And so he says, under the sun, this life under the sun is meaningless. If I can't be satisfied with life under the sun, then what's the point? And it leads him, finally, as an old man writing this book, to realize that he was right. Life under the sun is unsatisfactory. But there is life beyond the sun that there is an eternity waiting for every one of us beyond the sun that will satisfy every desire, whether that desire was for God or for evil. And so he's conducted this massive experiment. He's talked about it for 12 chapters. And now he says, verse 13, the end of the matter, the end of the experiment, this is my report After a lifetime lived doing this thing, this is what the conclusion I've come to. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This is what life is all about. This is the whole reason we exist. Fear God and keep his commandments. So I want to talk about the fear of God for the rest of our time here this morning. What is the fear of God and what should it look like? If, if this is his advice to us and we want to take it on board as inspired scripture coming from the mouth of God through Solomon into our ears and our hearts this morning, what does it mean to fear God? If you've been around church for the last 50 years, then you've probably heard a message that I myself have preached over the years that, and it goes like this. Fearing God was sort of an an old idea that people used to have. Now that we've sort of advanced, we've come to realize that 
There's nothing to fear in God. And really what the fear of God is, is just a sort of respect for God. The fear of God is really just having respect for him, as you'd respect your father if you're a godly person. I've heard it, and I've said it myself. But knowing that we were coming up to this climax in this, in this book, and knowing that this was really the point of the book, in, through my study through this book, I read through the Bible and, and looked at passages in the Bible where people experience the fear of God, and it looks a lot different to respect. It looks a lot like fear, actually. Like it looks like real, genuine fear. So you've got Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah, I think it's chapter 6, where he gets this vision of the temple and God filling the temple with his glory. And he sees manifested before him the glory of God and the seraphim, the, the angels of God, singing God's praises, saying, talking about his holiness. And, and Isaiah's response is not, I really respect you, God. Isaiah's response is, I'm dead. I'm going to die. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm from a people of unclean lips. I'm dead. Because he knew, like we ought to know, that even the, 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 the most godly saint, Mother Teresa or whoever, fill the blank, when she comes before a holy God, her sin, her inherent sin, will be judged and the wrath of God will be poured out. She will die and she'll be condemned to hell forever unless she has a redeemer, unless she has a saviour. And so Isaiah sees God and he says, I'm dead. It's the fear of the Lord. So what would it look like for us today to take on Solomon's advice, the end of the matter, this is what it's all about, Fear God and keep his commandments. What would it look like? I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of fear before. That sort of trembling, like I'm going to die kind of fear. A near death experience that's put the fear of God into you. Anyone had that? Yeah, a couple of nods. Back in the day before I started thinking like I was thinking in the trampoline park and, and was worrying about the consequences of my actions, I had a few near-death experiences. And I remember one vividly on Lake Eildon. I just finished year 12, just finished exams. Um, and we went up to Eildon. We were camping there. And my friend um, came from a very wealthy family and they had a couple of jet skis, really powerful Yamaha jet skis that are beautiful. And so we went to Eildon with those and uh, I came from, a, a, from the other side of the track, so I had a kayak, um, which, was, which I still loved, all right, and I still was grateful for, but it, it didn't do 100 k's an hour across Lake Yildon, all right? So I'm just saying, we just had different um, upbringings. And, um, and so I took the kayak, he took the jet skis, and a bunch of us just got after it and, and blew off steam after exams, okay? So we stayed there for about a week, and um, I had enjoyed paddling around the lake, and I 
do a bit of fishing and, and that kind of thing, just unwinding from exam period. And then towards the end of the stay, we had this brilliant idea that you know, if these jet skis were capable of towing wakeboards and, and water skis, which they were, then they'd surely be capable of dragging me and my kayak across the lake. And I was thinking, 100 k's an hour in a kayak, I'm sure that's never been done before. And so we did it. And so we, we got out there in the middle of the lake and tied the rope to the front of it. And I had my paddle for some reason. I don't know what that was for. Um, and I, was, I had a, a skirt, you know what I'm talking about, the sort of waterproof thing that clips on, and so I was, I was in. And the reason you have one of those is for when you're doing rapids so that you can be turned over and not fall out of the boat, right? You can right yourself. It's not so good when you're being dragged behind a jet ski. And so what happened was my friend was uh, driving the jet ski. Normally you always have someone um, facing backwards just to make sure everything's going okay. Everyone else was asleep. This was pretty early in the morning. Most of them were hungover. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so I had him facing forwards trying to miss the many dead trees that are all over that lake and me behind. And what happened was, to cut a short story even shorter, he took off going really fast. The front of my kayak dived into the water and just dragged me under. And then, so that was just me, done. Um, and he just kept going faster and faster and faster. I was pulling at the thing, trying to eject, and it wasn't working. And so, um, and because my, my la the last sound my mouth made was stop, my mouth was nice and open to gulp down half of Lake Eildon as we went along. And, um, and, and at some point, I don't know how long it lasted for, you know, these things seem like hours, but I was sure I was dead because he was hooning along on full throttle, making a lot of noise. I couldn't tell him to stop anyway because I was under the water and I was sure I was going to die. Fortunately, or, or by God's providence, depending on where you sit, uh, he came up against a huge submerged tree that was under the water. It was back in the drought in the end of the 90s, um, so the water was pretty low, and he had to really quickly uh, stop the engine, turn away, and I came up to the surface. And, and during that time, all I can remember was being absolutely panicked, like, there's nothing I can do, I'm going to die. So I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation before where you're not just scared about dying, you've actually realized that you are in fact going to die. And it's a kind of weird experience. Whether you've had one of those experiences or not, you need to understand that when we see through the scriptures people coming to terms with a holy God, a God who can both kill them and condemn them. That's the kind of fear they experience. And that's the kind of fear that Solomon is talking about. The fear of the Lord is a gut-wrenching, overwhelming um, realization of the limits of self and the infinitude of God. 
that he has absolute power over you and that you are being dragged behind a jet ski across Lake Eildon with absolutely no way of escaping. That's the fear of the Lord. And so I just want to make three points for us when we, as we go now. Three points. Three reasons why I think he wants us to fear the Lord. Three reasons why this makes up part of the reason we exist. The fear of the Lord. First of all, the fear of the Lord drives ministry. The fear of the Lord drives gospel ministry. Number two, the fear of the Lord drives obedience. And number three, the fear of the Lord drives worship. All right? Let's do this. The fear of the Lord drives ministry. I've got a text on the screen that I want us to take a look at from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is what Paul says to his fellow gospel workers. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we, all must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, echoing Solomon there, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I want, to, I want to just cap it there. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It feels like he probably just read this text before he wrote that letter to the Corinthians. He talks about everyone coming before God, right? Once our body is done, once we've returned to the dust, when we're away from the body, we'll be with the Lord. Our spirit will be with the Lord. And when that day comes, which is preferable for Christians than being in the body, that's another sermon, when that day comes, the judgment will happen where we'll be judged for everything, whether good or evil. Solomon says, every deed, every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's in the exact same language. And Paul says, therefore, because of that, we fear the Lord and we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So ministry, gospel ministry, and by that I mean sharing the good news of the gospel with people, persuading them of its truth, of its beauty, of its, um, of its uh, necessity, that that ministry is driven by the fear of the Lord because we know that every single person who has ever lived is going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. That every single person who has ever lived is going to have every deed, every secret thought, every day of their existence judged, whether good or evil. And so you think about your loved ones who don't know Jesus. You think about your loved ones who might be great people. They might do great things. They might even be a better person than you. 
but they don't know Jesus, and that means when they come before the judgment seat of Christ, they will be judged according to their goodness, rather than we who confess Christ will be judged according to Jesus' goodness. And only those who have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to them, credited to them, will survive that judgment. There will only be condemnation and hell for those who don't know Christ. This is absolutely clear and unequivocal. Might not be popular, but it is absolutely true. And so you think about that. You think about your loved ones who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet confess Jesus, who do not have the righteousness of Christ credited to them apart from their own goodness or works. You think about those people. You think about the judgment of God. You think about the fear of God. And it's going to drive you to gospel ministry, isn't it? Either that or you just hate them. You you just thought you loved them, but actually you hate them. So the fear of the Lord, the understanding that he is a God not to be mocked or messed with, that he will be the judge of every one and every thought and deed that drives us like it drove Paul to the ministry of the gospel. So it drives us to ministry. Number two, it drives us to obedience. I want to hear from Jesus himself. Drives us to obedience. Solomon has said... Fear God and keep his commandments. One of the ways you're going to be able to keep his commandments is if you fear God. So I want to look at Luke 12. And this is what Jesus says. I tell you, my friends. Softens you up a little bit before he gives you the news. All right, I tell you, my friends. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. You see see the beautiful... um, Seeming contradiction of Jesus' words here and, and the gospel itself. Fear God so you don't have to fear God. Fear God who both kills and condemns. God does both. He kills and he condemns. Fear him so that you don't have to fear him. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. If God cares for the sparrows, if, if, if God knows the heart and mind of every sparrow and you are much more valuable than a sparrow, if every one of your hairs, whether it's grey or not, is numbered by God, then you don't need to fear him who you ought to fear. It's not a contradiction. Jesus knows that the mark of a truly saved person who need not fear hell is a right fear of God. Let me say that again. The mark of a truly saved person who need not fear 
the condemnation of God is a right fear of God. That's the mark. You need to do more than say a prayer. You need to do more than go down the front at Billy Graham or whatever church camp you went to. You need to do more than just confess at one point and maybe be baptized at some point after that. You need to cultivate the fear of God that permeates every day of your existence. Fear him who casts both body and soul into hell, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. The fear of God drives our worship. There's this great account of the people of Israel, and I won't read it all for you because it starts in 1 Samuel 5 and goes through to 2 Samuel 6 and following, I think, but it's this great story of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you haven't been around church or don't know your Bible that well, the Ark of the Covenant was something that God prescribed for the people of Israel to build so that he could dwell with his people. That in that Ark, in that box were the the, the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai, and, and on the covenant dwelt God's very presence, the holy presence of God that could cast you into hell, dwelt in this place, on this spot, on this ark. And so he had prescribed very strict instructions on how to deal with this box. If you just strolled up to this box and you know, had a little lean on it and wanted to have a little conversation with God, you were dead, instantly dead. Because again, a holy God cannot dwell in the presence of an unholy people. Isaiah was right to be afraid. And there's this account, it starts in 1 Samuel 5. I'll just go through it quickly for you. Basically, the Philistines, who were the great enemy of the Israelites, came in, they fought them, and they beat them. They won the battle, and they stole the ark. And this was the worst thing that could possibly happen for the people of Israel. If you asked five Jews, they probably all would have said, we would rather all of us slaughtered than the ark of the covenant be stole by these Philistines, these pagans. And yet that's exactly what happened. They took the Ark of the Covenant. They chucked it on their own wagon. They took it away after they'd sacked uh, the city. And they took it back to their own temple where they had their own gods, statues carved out of stone. They had great names like Magog and Ashdod and these real like Star Trek kind of names. And so they set up the Ark of the Covenant in their own temple. And they sort of put it in front of their gods as if to say, who's the boss now? And it said, the scripture says that when they came back in the next morning into their temple, the, the statue of uh, Dagog was face down in the ground. And so they quickly, before the, the word got out, they got, the, you know, got their cranes out and got the heavy lifting gear and got it back up again. And that, that didn't really happen. Like they started spinning the story through the news networks and everything that happens today, right? And, and, and so that didn't happen. But then the next morning they came in and, and he was on his face and his arms were chopped off and his legs were chopped off and his head was chopped off. And there's no way of getting around that. The living God was putting him in his place, was putting the Philistines in their place. And so they started up what would become this great tour of 
uh, of Palestine with the ark. They would just take it from place to place and everywhere they put it down there would be pestilence would break out and, and eventually half the people got tumours all over their bodies and eventually they kind of got the message from God that, that this God is not to be messed with. That our gods of, of, of stone might, might just put up with our insolence but this God doesn't, doesn't mess around. And so what they did was they sacrificed to this living God. They made tumours out of gold to sort of mimic their own tumours, hoping that would have some effect. And they filled the thing with gold and and put it on wagons with gold. And they said, we're going to send this back to you, Israelites, right? We've had enough of this God now. We'll go back to our stone gods. They're, they're, They're nicer to us. And so they sent it back to the Israelites who picked it up along the way But along the way, they had forgotten what kind of God they were dealing with. They had forgotten the fear of God. They had forgotten his instructions about how to deal with him as the living God. And so instead of assembling it on poles and carrying it uh, on poles as he had described, they just chucked it on the back of a wagon. And at the point they took it over and started walking back to Israel, God broke out. And there are different ways of figuring the numbers, but thousands of Israelites died on that day. And so they packed it up and sent it off to a, a godly guy. Pretty cool name, Obed-Edom. Sent it off to him. He was a righteous man. He was a man who knew his scriptures. He was a man who remembered the fear of God. And so he agreed to house it. But can you imagine being approached to do that ministry, right? We try and get you on the roster to serve coffee. This guy was asked to take into his possession something that just wiped out thousands of people, right? Uh, that, was, that would have been a, a tense moment, but he agreed to take it. And because he feared God, he was able to house the ark of God and God brought great blessing to his house. And so I just want to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and read a little bit for you. David's on the scene now. He's become king. David again gathered. This is 2 Samuel 6 and verse, six, uh, verse, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Iho, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God and Iho went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Again, the people of Israel come to this 
God, this living God who will not be messed with. They do not do things according to the commandments of God. Again, they chuck it on a cart. They forget the commands of God and the instruction of God. And even though Uzzah is just trying to stop the thing falling off the back of the wagon as the oxen stumble, even though he doesn't seem to have any ill intentions in his heart, he is killed there and there as the anger of God breaks out on him. That's a holy God dealing with an unholy people. You might have good intentions. You might be a good moral person. You might be like Uzzah and you're just trying to do the right thing. But no one here is sinless and therefore no one is exempt from the wrath of a holy God. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Oh, sorry, verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, saying, God, why have you done this? He wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't a bad person. He wasn't an evil person. And David was what? Afraid. David feared the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can we deal with this God? He's so holy. He's so perfect. How can, how can I or anyone else deal with this God? How can we come to terms with this God? How can we manage this God, this unmanageable, untamable God? Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, now they're carrying it the way God prescribed, now those who bore the ark of the Lord, when they had gone six steps, David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Six steps. That's the kind of worship that God looks for. That's the kind of worship that God wants. When a people, God's people, so know the holiness of God and so understand the righteousness of God and so come to terms with the fear of God, understanding that at any moment he can both kill and condemn you. When that people comes before the presence of God and are not killed, then it only takes six steps for them to break out in a worship service. These guys carrying this thing, knowing the recent history, knowing how many have died, carrying this thing back up to David, six steps. We're alive. We're alive. We haven't been wiped out. We're alive. The living, holy God who can take our lives at any moment hasn't killed us. Let's put it down. Let's have a worship service. And scholars assume from the 
language of the text, that that happened every six steps. Where people don't understand the fear of God, they come into church week to week with so much I was going to say something too harsh there. Let me say it this way. Unless we, we understand the fear of God, we can very easily fall into coming into worship, indeed coming for God at any time with a really casual disposition. When we forget that this God is the same God, when he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, when he's the same God that you and I deal with day to day, then the fear of God drives us to worship. Like, how long ago was it for you that grace actually seemed amazing? Has it ever seemed amazing? If grace doesn't seem amazing to you now, if the forgiveness and pardon and reconciliation and adoption of God doesn't seem amazing to you, it's probably because you don't fear God. But if you fear God who can both kill you and condemn you, then grace will seem like the most amazing thing in the world. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks as we look at this theme of grace. But if you can't come in here and sing a song about God's grace and be moved by it, then I'm pretty sure it's the fear of God that's lacking in your life. It's not the fact that we're not hearing the right crescendos. It's that you've become lazy in your reverence, in your fear, in your trembling before God. And so the fear of God drives ministry, it drives worship, And it, drive, and it drives obedience. So that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Twelve chapters, twelve weeks. We covered a lot of ground. But over and over again, Solomon has been pointing us away from those broken cisterns, those broken wells that can hold no water, and pointing us to the eternal God who promises to quench every one of our thirsts forever. And so Solomon didn't know it at the time. He didn't know Jesus from his perspective in history. He was hoping for him, but he didn't know the fulfillment of God's covenant in Jesus. But I think if he did, he would have wanted us to finish our study of his book looking to Jesus looking to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of every one of our desires, the desires that he was trying to fulfill, trying to satisfy in this life under the sun, he would want us to point us to Jesus who promises to satisfy every one of our desires, both now under the sun and for eternity. And so as we close now, I want to pray for us. I want to pray that we would both know the fear of God who cast both body and soul into hell and that we would rejoice in his grace in Jesus that spares us from that judgment.
All right? Let me pray the gospel for us. Our dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you both for the book of Ecclesiastes with so much wisdom for us as modern people today. And we thank you for your word in Scripture, which reveals to us both that you are a God to be feared and a God to be praised. A God who owns us, who can both kill us and condemn us without any indictment, and a God who himself dies in our place and for our sins so that we might not be judged. This is amazing grace. This is our amazing gospel. This is the good news that Solomon was searching for. This is the good news that everyone we know is searching for, whether they know it or not. Father, please reveal to us freshly again, even now as I pray, reveal to us freshly the goodness of the gospel, the greatness of the good news. That at the same time, you are a God who is not to be messed with. You are a God who can and perhaps does kill those who mock you. Kill those who do not fear you. And judges those who do not worship you. And condemns those who do not receive your offer of eternal life. That one time we worship a God who will not be tamed. And at the very same instant, we worship a father who calls us his children. We worship the son who died in our place. We worship the Spirit who regenerates our hearts and gives us new birth. Father, please help us to know that gospel, that truest gospel that encompasses all that is true about you and your attributes. Lord, help us to know the holy God of Scripture that we might fear him and love him and serve him and worship Him, and obey Him, and live with Him forever.